Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Day Wash Podcast, Drums in the Shed. This is episode 27. Um, sorry, no interview this week. I am trying to get some more interviews organised. Uh, hope you enjoyed last week's episode as much as, uh, as I did making it and listening back to it. It was great fun. It was a bit, I had a bit of an error. Um, I had something wrong with the file and... Um, I was freaking out because obviously when you um, when you cross platform podcasts, there's this kind of view that um, things get spat out into the world, so to speak, and they then they take on a life of their own, you know. And there was something wrong with the episode. It hadn't. Um, it's a bit complicated. It's very boring. But basically, if I have to edit anything, um, which I do very occasionally, and I do even when I'm on my own, because sometimes I have to stop speaking for a reason or. Um, I go off on tangents and I lose the thread of where conversation came, you know, what I was talking about came from and I have to sort of stop and go, what the hell was I talking about? Oh yeah, I was talking about that. That's how I got there. Crikey, how did I get there? You know, one of those things. So sometimes I have to edit the files and it's a very simple thing, um, but the, the, the Seb interview was extremely complicated because... Um, it was even more complicated than the one I did with Rich, which had audio clips in it. That was much easier. That was simply a matter of, of, of chopping up the chopping up the interview and putting the audio clips in the appropriate places. But we said, because we, um, we had loads of problems with... Um, we were on FaceTime, I think. I mean, it doesn't matter, all those platforms. It was just, we had a weird, weird issue with the... Um, with the connections, we kept losing connection from each other, so we kept missing each other's questions. And uh, and then when I'd done some editing, I, it turned out that I'd actually, uh, I'd actually edited all of the edits because I'd obviously selected all beyond a certain point with logic, and then I'd moved, done some done some crossfading and moved some stuff, and I'd edited all the other bits, and I'd saved it and not checked it. It's very hard. If you, unless you zoom right in, you, you can miss those little edits. And there was like loads of problems. And there was also a bit in the middle that I thought I'd edited out where we had not heard each other and we were sort of gibbering on saying, oh, are you there? And all this stuff. So I had to re-save uh, it. And and it was like a bit of a job re-publishing uh, it. It didn't like it. But what it did do is it deleted the original file of all the platforms and then put the new file out, which was exactly the same name. Um, and it went out a day and a half later and it was all fine. Um, so it, yeah, in the end, it's good to know that you can actually release something into the world over multi-platforms um, using the RSS feed thing. And if you have a problem with it, you can actually retrieve that problem. Um, it's not something that goes out and gets copied into its own right, and then you have no control over that. Um, so yeah, so that was the thing with last week. Um, but it was a very very complicated interview anyway to edit but i really enjoyed making it and we had, I had about four hours of audio um information at the end of it with the interview with me and him chatting and uh, i ended up using about two and a half hours of it so uh, it's kind of similar to the one i did with rich really i had about three and a half hours with rich we had we were chatting quite a while before and then afterwards and um yeah and it's kind of unscripted anyway i didn't uh, i did a little bit of a thing with seb same with uh with rich and with Stuart. you know just had a few questions but normally you know people are people have a story to tell don't they and they're a bit chatty so it's really easy to just kind of jolly things along you just need a few little prompts 
And uh, yeah, it was a great interview with Seb last week. So if you have not listened to that, I really recommend it. And the one with Rich Cass as well. Really, really great interview. And uh, and the one with Stuart. They're all very different. Me and Stuart are doing another one. Um, I'm not sure when. We keep talking about it. Um, but I know he has big family commitments and stuff. And obviously, we're just coming out of the lockdown uh, situation now in the UK. Hopefully, things are going to improve. And things are going to get a little bit more back to normal. But um, yeah, I'm in a much more... Simple situation this year because he has children <laughs> and, uh, and we don't. So I think uh, lockdown for people with children has been a quite different experience than it has been for people without. That, that's definitely been my um, understanding of the situation uh, from afar, shall I say. But, um, but yeah, this week I was... Um, Basically, I decided to go unscripted this week. I know what I'm, I was going to talk about, but I really I wanted to just not have a, a script in any way. I wanted to just kind of um, have a quite a loose format because it's something that I, I wasn't going to talk about. And I decided, actually, maybe it should be quite interesting because it, I, it feels like there's been a bit of an evolution uh, or even like um, I'm thinking what's the what's the opposite word of evolution like. Um, like things have gone almost full circle and back in time, you know, with gear, with hardware, drum hardware specifically. And if you're kind of, you know, if you're into gear um, and you're into gear, you know, you've been buying gear recently in the last couple of years, then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you're if you're not someone who's into gear, um, which to be honest with you, I put myself in that category and then I look at how much gear I've got and all the kind of things that I, you know, all the bits of hardware that I own, and I kind of think, well, maybe I'm a bit more of a gearhead than I give myself credit for. I'm not on the same level as some people that I know um, that have multiple drum kits and uh, you know, whole cellars full of stuff or storage units full of stuff. I'm not on that level. Uh, I own what I I class as four drum kits really. Three of them are the same drum kit really. They're three sonar bass drums, 18, 20, 22, with four toms, 10, 12, 14, 16. So there's there's basically three drum kits there. You know, there's the classic bop kit, 18, 12, 14. And then there's the, tw there's the same with the 20. And then you add the 13 to that, and you've got yourself, but both of those, um, you've got yourself Jeff Tame Watts or whatever you want. Um, or uh, Jack Dijonette maybe you know just those 12 13 14 thing and then you go 13 16 with a 20 or 13 16 with the 22 and then you've got what i would use normally for bigger gigs like tom mccray and stuff you know those kind of bigger rooms um the lovely thing about the three bass drums i've got is the 22 is very shallow so it's really great for those kind of gigs great for recording as well the th the three bass drums the, the 18 is I love playing that drummer. I've never liked playing 18s. Uh, actually, bizarrely, I've really got into the Yamaha one. I've got set up in here now. In my little studio, I've got this little Yamaha Maple Absolute Nouveau, which I bought off an old friend of mine, Andy Brotherton. Hello, Andy, if you're listening. I know you do occasionally. Top man. Um, and Andy had this kit. Uh, when, when he was at college, actually, I was very lucky enough to teach Andy for a little bit, and he was at college, and he was a good lad great um he, he basically nailed the big band chair for three years at leeds nobody could touch him um 
but he's a great commercial pop drummer as well and all that stuff uh, doing lots of different kinds of gigs um, and has had a really successful career since he left college but when he was at college he had this um, this kit and uh, I remember playing it and we were, we were chatting about the Tom you know the 12 inch Tom and he was like oh, I don't really like it and then um, a few years later he, he had it um, modified he had it made an inch shallower you know and uh, anyway cut a long story short it, it came up for sale it coincided with me playing one at london jazz festival um 2000 um can't remember now 17 or 18 i was on um the royal it's like the festival hall foyer gig there was chris potter was on with it with harland so they had a yamaha because because eric was a kind of Yamaha affiliate, isn't he? He's connected to that company. Um, and has been for a long, long time in different guises. And uh, yeah, they had this, they had the kit I've got in front of me here with a, with a 16 floor tom as well. And uh, and I and I played it and I really fell in love with it. I, it was a bizarre thing. I'd never really been that into Yamaha drums. I think they just sound great. They're just a really great thing. Yamaha make great things. They're just really... They've got like a kind of solidity about them. Um, but I don't mean that in a kind of generic way. It's just they've got like a really, there's something about every Yamaha product. You buy a motorbike, you know, you buy yourself buy a piano, you buy a, a mouth organ, you know. They've just got this real quality. Um, and they have their bespoke ranges. You know, there's the Phoenix thing, I think, with Yamaha drums. And I don't really know a lot about all that high-end kind of gear stuff I get. I just start, end up sounding like I'm talking out my backside once I get into... I know a little bit about SQ2, SQ2 with Sonor and um, I know a little bit about the Krabby Auto stuff because I've got a snare drum custom shop and all that stuff. But really, I'm not... Um, I've got a couple of uh, people that I know that I really, really know a lot about drums and I that's why I don't get into any kind of conversations about that kind of stuff. But anyway, this I played this kit at the London Jazz Festival and really loved it. And then I just saw Andy uh, not long after that by coincidence and we were chatting and he was coming up north to do some a gig somewhere and he they had like a I think they had a kit that was on the show, you know, that he didn't have to schlep around. And he brought this drum kit here and he, he let me borrow it for a while, see if I liked it. And uh, I did I liked it as much as as the kit that I'd played. So we came to an arrangement. And and it now lives permanently in my little studio here. Uh, and the sonors I use for gigging. And um I have been thinking about because we've been in this lockdown thing and the you know, gigging doesn't look like it's going to be happening anytime soon. I'd made a decision two or three weeks ago to set one of the sonors up with the 20 and get the 12, 13, 14 set up. Um, and I bought some more mics and bits and bobs. But I've been kind of getting into recording more and learning more about how to record properly. And uh, the last few weeks have been really, really good for me with, in respect of that. It's been a really useful kind of uh, period of actually doing something, kind of learning something properly. Uh, that's the way I see it, not sort of doing things in a kind of uh, half ass kind of way, which I normally do, uh, actually doing it properly. And I've got to the stage where I've got what I consider, I've got quite a nice sound together. So I'd made a decision that I'm just leaving these drums where they are because they sound great. And I've got the, the, the 18, sounds really punchy. I've got the mic in the right place, I think, in the bass drum now. I was messing around for ages. I'm playing with a wooden beater, which I was 
which was a revelation for me when I did some recording um, last August uh, 2019 and uh, went to a studio in uh, Pembrokeshire uh, near Clarveston, um, near Haverford West, a studio called Studio WZ, a um, fantastic engineer um, called Owain, uh, runs that place and it's a brilliant studio and he's got some amazing drums amazing drums really 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 beautiful beautiful stuff um, amazing snare drums as well but just the whole vibe he's got some great drums and he's he's really really uh i think i've talked about him before but I, i've got a lot of respect for this guy very clever great ears and very knowledgeable um and the revelation that that i had and I think I think he had a little bit as well. I'm not sure. He'd have to say it for himself. But when we were I was recording there, we were we were kind of getting a, trying to get a bass drum sound like you do in the studio. You know, we were taking our time trying different things, and we got into the wooden beater thing because I play with this. I've got this DW wooden beater, which comes with like a a fluffy hat that you put over it to make a soft beater. And uh, and I like cork beaters and I like wooden beaters, um, and I like. Of, uh, fluffy beaters as well for playing very gently which is what Eric Harlem plays with most of the time by the way he, he plays he carries on around with him uh, the couple of times I've uh, been lucky enough to sort of meet him and see him play he's he's always had it in his stick bag you know and he, and he puts it on the pedal and he, he carries it around with him like his sticks it's like it's, re it's a regular part of his sound you know and um, so uh, anyway so I, d I made this sort of decision when I was a few weeks ago uh, after this thing, when we recorded down down at uh, Studio WZ, um, was it really like this sound with the wooden beater, you know? So I decided I'm gonna gonna get this bass drum, um, gonna tune it up a bit, I'm gonna get the mic in the right place, I'm gonna get the wooden beater on it, I'm gonna try and get a sound together, and I feel like I've got really interesting, very punchy sound, which. Um, which is making me really think about how I'm playing the bass drum and about being more precise with the bass drum and playing everything from the ground up um, much more than than I've ever done before. And we, one of my ambitions of this of this lockdown period and sort of beyond it now, I'm hopefully you know we're looking now beyond that thing, um, is to have more of a center to my sound from the bass drum up into the hands so be more grounded definitely be more grounded so i've had this little i've got this little bass drum pedal setup thing which i was thinking was talking about a couple of podcasts ago and i've been doing a lot of left foot practice i'm playing with my left foot there it's under the desk now i've moved it from somewhere else and it just sits under the desk and i basically i can practice the bass drum pretty much all day whatever i'm doing if i'm doing something if i'm uh, if i'm at work on the computer and doing some emailing or doing some or whatever i'm doing i can have the bass drum pedal there and i can just practice it and i've got it on this sort of slightly higher tension than i would normally use and the beater is quite extended so you know like the drumstick thing when you you don't play you don't play the drumstick by holding it right at the very end of the drumstick, do you? Because you, you know, it's like it's it's like a nightmare. I'm now hitting it. And I've got no control. I'm trying to hold the weight of this whole stick. Um, 
very different than the brush, isn't it? You can play the brush, hold it right at the end and get a beautiful fat sound out of the brush. But, um, and keep control of it, whereas with a stick, it's a horror show. But the bass drum pedal, I've got pretty much really as near as I can feel comfortable. I've got it as, as near the end of the shaft as possible. So I've got a long throw, um, much more weight in the beta than I would want to have. And it's been really good for me for practicing. It's felt like, um, it just felt really kind of uh, more centered in the feet, you know. And it's brought up all sorts of problems. And when I'm listening to myself recording, it's highlighted all sorts of problems, you know. It's highlighted this thing again. I think I mentioned this before of, uh, when I teach feathering, I have a specific way I talk about feathering the bass drum. And it's counter, it's sort of against some of the other views. I, I definitely have a different view than a lot of the educators I've seen online and stuff. My, my belief is it should, the bass drum should be played, when you feather in, generically flat-footed and played as if you were playing pianism on a snare drum. You've got to play from the start position. You can't play from the head. You'll see lots of stuff online, though, that's contradictory to that. And that's cool. I have, you know, respect for that and all that. It ain't for me. It don't work for me. I can't play pianissimo in the same way as when I play in the way I play and I can play really really quietly on the bass drum it's one of the few things that I would say I'm pretty good at and it's definitely helped me learn to play the bass drum um, but the one thing that I've definitely noticed is that is that my accuracy in the bass drum when playing um, sort of vertical patterns specific rhythmical patterns or it, or it, patterns that are kind of in the gaps you know, of, the, of what's going on in the hands. I definitely take some liberties. And uh, me and a very good friend of mine, Elliot Henshaw, were, were trying to make a podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to try again on Tuesday. Um, we had this farce of a situation that went on. Uh, we had uh, far too much gear and um, not much idea, it would appear, um, which isn't supposed to be any sort of rhyme, by the way, but... Uh, no, we had we had loads of problems. We had, we had exactly the opposite problems. He, his uh, his drums were were too loud, and the voice was too quiet. And my drums were too quiet, and my voice was too loud. Um, and it was just a disaster, the whole thing. So we're going to try again. But um, we were chatting about about lining things up, you know, and about about that kind of accuracy thing, and. Uh, and the only time you really learn that, I think, is when you record yourself, you know, when you when you really zone in on, you know, where am I landing with my downbeats and with my perception to the click, you know. Because it's the thing of, you know, there's, there's sort of two takes on this. Um, I like to play around the click. And there are drummers that I know that play absolutely bang on with the click. So like when I was talking to Rich Cass, you know, a few weeks ago, he was talking about this thing of getting within 10 milliseconds, you know, and really, really zooming in on on exactly where, you know, compared to where the actual, where that moment is, you know. And uh, whereas my thing is, it's like, as long as it's around it, it can be, sometimes it can be behind, sometimes it can be in front, and sometimes it can be, can be kind of on it, you know. It's 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 fine because I think that there's a there's an air of breathing in that because there's so much time that one has 
when you're playing to a click track or to a metronome. There's lots and lots of space you can enjoy. And and so I feel like I've definitely got a lot better at that. And there's definitely a, a level of intent behind it. But the thing that I've always has always annoyed me about my playing, um, and it's definitely improved in the last 15 years, is my right foot and, and the fact that it rushes and there are coordinational issues with it and all kinds of things. And it, it's just that, you know, it's the endless journey of another tweak here and trying to get this right here and, you know. Uh, and I just felt, I just feel like in the last few weeks that I've had an opportunity to, you know, take some time out and actually explore some of those problems properly because I haven't had a gig, you know. None of us have been gigging. It's been a situation where there's been no music. So it's um, it's felt like no pressure. I mean, I've been doing lots of these collaboration things. I've been, quite a few more of them have come in the last few weeks. I got a little bit behind with them. There's a bit too much of that going on, uh, just in relation to being still being at work and being very busy with work and and lots of things going on on the work side of things and still doing a bit of teaching and stuff. And we've got some of our our third years have got a huge big deadline coming up soon, and they've just had a big deadline just gone past. So there's lots going on at work, which is great. Um, but anyway, that's all by the by. The thing that I wanted to talk about today, uh, having got sort of slightly off on a tangent again, which was about the Yamaha thing, really, is about gear. And it's about hardware and about this thing of what I was saying before is it feels like drum hardware has gone through a full life cycle of evolution. It's gone from this very, very, I mean, like the, the hardware of the early drum kits was really, really, um, I don't know anything about it, to be honest with you. It all just looks a bit flimsy. And it's one of the things with vintage drums that um, is always challenging. It's the thing, I had this Sono Chicago Star um, uh, for a while. Uh, fantastic drum kit, amazing bass drum. Um, the toms are good, but the bass drum was amazing. Um, but the thing about that drum kit that, that I struggled with, because I'm just used to modern hardware, was the hardware. You know, the floor tom legs were a bit of a nightmare. I didn't really like the tom stem. It was always just a bit of a pain. The bass drum, it did hold the tom fine and all that, but it just something about it felt a little bit flimsy because the legs were really old-fashioned. The legs worked really well, you know. German designed and all that, but still, it was just sort of the legs were not, they, they were quite uh, close together, the, the bass drum spurs, you know. So they felt like the bass drum always felt like it was a little bit kind of um, top heavy, you know, for where the spurs were. And so, yeah, so I got rid of that kit anyway because I wanted to buy these. Uh, well, I bought these Sonors, and uh, very luckily, I sold the drums to a guy that wanted them originally when I bought them, um, a guy in Sweden. So they were shipped off over there. Um, but the Sonor kit, uh, the guy I bought it off, Joe, Joe had put all Yamaha hardware onto most of it. So I think, well, my opinion is this. I used for, for years Yamaha cymbal stands and snare stands, and I still do use the snare stands and the bass drum pedals and uh it's back to this thing again of of kind of this quality thing um i that's just you know the yamaha stuff stuff i use um but 
I'll get onto that in a minute because I just just kind of wanted to talk about this thing of vintage hardware from that 60s period where you had flat bottom cymbal stands that actually stood up very well, you know. And there was this kind of view that they weren't very sturdy and they were, you know, they'd fall over and and uh, but they were very lightweight and they were very very simple design. I used to have a couple of premier ones. They were they had three legs that used to drop down and then you'd screw up with a wing nut underneath. And um, they were, they didn't have, you know, great, the top part wasn't great. At least the felts and all that part of it used to all be a bit rubbish. And that's why a lot of symbols you see that get keyholed from that period because um, because the, there was none of this kind of plastic, nylon-y kind of symbol um, felt holders, these cups, you know, they, that stuff didn't exist then. It was these, just these little... Um, it's like rubber tube, isn't it? Plastic tube that would just wear away really easy because it's a piece of metal leaning against another piece of metal with this piece of sort of rubber plastic tube thing between it. I bought these, recently bought these Tama lightweight stands and they're very similar design like that and already one of them I've had to replace that bit because it's worn away, you know. Um, they, they, they use old school style. It's like, you know, proper kind of heritage stand really. It uses this old school style like... Um, tubing it's like uh i don't know what it is it's plastic or rubbery or silicone or whatever but it, anyway you know it's, it had my ride symbol on it and it, it's worn away within a year so i've replaced it now with um you know with a proper uh, felt holder and, and taken all the system that they have in it off so it's much better um but a lot of this new hardware this is what i was kind of talking getting to talk about has gone back to that thing hasn't it so it's funny because for years and years I used Yamaha single braced boom stands. Um, they're really they're pretty lightweight. I have no idea what the serial number is, um, but they they made these uh, single braced boom stands at three tier. So you've got um, the top part with the boom adjustment thing, which goes into the stand. Very clever design. You got your top part, a middle part, a bottom part, and uh, I have, I still got all of them. I've got about four or five of them, and they've between them they have done probably ten thousand gigs. I mean, no exaggeration. And they've both of all of them have been on tour and stuff, and been chucked around and set up and pulled down, and you know done. done thousands of pickup gigs and um you know one of a couple of them had a sim had a tom sorry uh, on one of the uh, stands which had my ride on for years and i used to play the pearl masters custom the bass drum was undrilled so i had the tom on a little um on a bracket you know and um and so those stands have had the bracket on them and and they've just stood the test of time america amazingly and then the the uh the hi-hat stands I use, still use, one in front of me now is the single brace, Yamaha. Hi-hat stand, they're brilliant. They just work so well. Um, I gig now with the Gibraltar, with this um, flat-bottom, lightweight Gibraltar stand. And it's really good, actually. And it uh, just fits in the hardware bag a little bit snugger. It's not a lot, actually a lot lighter than the Yamaha. Um, but it's, it's just slightly lighter. Uh, but... And then, like this, and then the bass drum pedals that I use, all Yamaha. I've got the two. There's two that I gig with. 
um, are the um, they're called like direct drive. You know, they've got like a metal, a proper solid piece of aluminium between the pedal and the beater onto the cam. You know, there's um, it's not a chain, but the one I've got here that I'm practicing on, and, and it's been purposefully practicing on this one, is another Yamaha one, which um, a very nice Ollie Cunningham gave me, who um, was no longer using it for his foot tambourine, so I've kind of it's a permanent borrower at the moment. Um, it will go back to him if he ever he needs it back. But I've been using it to practice with, and uh, it's got a chain on this one. Uh, it's a really uh, it's a really nice pedal though, um, and I've always used the Yamaha. I've had the Yamaha pedals for years, years and years and years. These two direct drive ones that I've got, I've got one on the Yamaha kit in there, and I've got one in the in the hardware bag. Um, they must be like 15, 16 years old and they're absolutely in mint condition, you know. I mean, I'm talking about the, the, the working mechanism here. I'm not talking about the actual aesthetic. Of, they've had my foot sliding about on them and they've been chucked in that bags and they've got all kinds of craps falling on them. But the actual working mechanism is perfect. And one of the reasons why is I do oil things. I'm, I like my three-in-one. Um, a bit sad like that, but it's, my dad always had the garden, the, the, the uh, lawnmower uh, oil for, you know, gardening. Like, I, always think, I used to think of it as gardening oil. I don't know why, but it was because it used to be for the lawnmower. You know, he used to have an old-style lawnmower that um, used to push along on rollers, and you had to oil them, you know, and he had a little chain in there and everything. And then, of course, we had push bikes, me and my brother, and you were always oiling the chain and oiling the gears and all that stuff with the three-in-one. And uh, and I use the three in one on drums. I use it for lug boxes when I take heads off, just to um, always service the lug boxes with a little one single drop before I put the head back on. So uh, you get lovely smooth uh, when you tighten up the uh, the nuts. You get lovely smooth action. I put uh, oil on. A lot of the joints on the cymbal stands and hi-hat stands and the stools and all that stuff, so stuff moves nice and easily. I, I, I use these Gibraltar stools. Uh, I've got two. I think they're brilliant. I've got I use the Rock and Sock tops, which I think are the best tops, in my opinion. They're just mega. Um, and I never and the stools I use are all thread. They're all spinners, so uh, there's no risk of them ever falling down. You, you know, they, 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 they're on they're a wind-up thread. But I always all the threads, you know. Because you've got metal on metal working components here that uh, that because of you know because you because you've got weight going on them in, in in whatever way the bass drum pedal's got weight on it the stool has definitely has weight and it's got misa on it you know um, then there's it's any movement is is going to cause fatigue you know so I always just think any sort of any kind of uh, decent lubrication is going to help that situation. And it's definitely stood the test of time. I mean, these are Gibraltar stool bottoms. I've got two of them here. Um, and then the other one I don't use anymore for gigging. And I, and actually, I don't use it at home anymore. It's, it's now in a hardware uh, box in my loft. Is a Pearl um, stool bottom, which is it's got a little bit loose on the rivets, but it's actually still fine. And I bought that in 1989, you know. Or maybe 1990, actually. Uh, and it works absolutely fine. It's just a, it's just got a little bit loose on some of the rivets on the, some of the on the joins on the legs, but the actual mechanism 
where you tighten it up and the, and the screw thread and all that, it's all bob on, you know. And again, that's because it's been oiled regularly. And the bass drum pedals I oil, I oil uh, the spring and everything. Uh, I oil the bearings on the cam um, and I oil uh, just all the joints, basically. Um, and I just recommend it for all of your hardware, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think, they're like, again, Yamaha, they make this just very good, very high-quality stuff that's not ridiculously expensive, you know. Um, I think, yeah, I think, that, I mean, for me, I think there's three companies that, Gen that I've had a lot of, a lot to do with and I think make amazing hardware. Um, Yamaha come very highly for me. They don't seem to be making yet these heritage stands. Um, I think they might be moving into it with the snare stand. I think Luke Flowers actually, uh, I think he showed me, he's got one of these flat bottom, very, very lightweight Yamaha stands. Um, I need to have a look into them, but I I got the I've all my snare stands in here. There's like four of them. There's one in the heart. There's one in the hardware bag there. There's one in front of me on my practice pad here, with my um, with my pad. The stand it's on is a Yamaha single braced, and then the one one with the kit there is single braced Yamaha, and then the other one that's stored up there is a Yamaha single brace. They're all the same. And I've never had any problems with, with any of these stands. They've been tip top, you know. And uh, my, my Black Beauty is a six and a half with big die cast. It's quite a heavy snare drum. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a decent weight. And these stands, they have absolutely no problems with that kind of thing. But yeah, so the Yamaha stuff's good. Um, I really like Gibraltar hardware. I've got all... Oh, I've got a whole set of uh, cymbal stands and hi-hat stand that these these flat bottom um, stands that uh, that you know they're they're a slight they're a slightly bigger stand than the than the other competitors which I'm going to talk about in a minute but they're really really good and they're all on my kit here on the Yamaha now because I've replaced they were my gigging stands and they're very light they replaced the Yamaha ones so they're slightly lighter than that. Um, Actually, I'll tell you a funny story about the Yamaha ones. Um, so they go very high. You know, they're very long. They're in three sections. And I basically, one day, was like, this is, I don't even know when it was, 2008, 2009. I was like, you know, these cymbal stands, I only ever put them up to this height. Why am I carrying all this extra weight around me? So three of them, I got the hacksaw out and I chopped off um basically half of the um half of the metal on the second and third tiers and uh, it made them a lot lighter you know because you're just thinking about like carrying all this stuff around with you you don't actually use a lot of that metal so um anyway that was a kind of a little side thing there but i replaced all those stands with the gibraltar stuff i bought it a few years ago two or three years ago they made this decision to go to the little lighter stands it was after i had um, I'd had this hernia operation in September 2017 and uh, I'd had the hernia for a long, long time. Nothing to do with drums. It was a genetic thing, but uh, uh, I had one on the other side anyway, um, which is very common. Um, but I decided after I had the operation um, that I was going <clears> to <throat> just get some lighter stands, basically. 
So around that time, uh, I was just looking out and I started buying these stands up. And then when I had the operation, I was, I didn't carry anything for about a month. I had about, yeah, about a month off. It took about a year to recover from that. It was a horrible thing. Um, one of those sort of, yeah, just not great. Um, but it, it was definitely helpful having a lighter hardware bag, you know. So I replaced the hi-hat stand, which is the Yamaha, and three. I carry three cymbal stands around me as, as standard. I have, a, I have a ride, and then depending on the gig, I have another ride and a crash, or two crashes, or three rides. Depends on the gig. I play a 21 Jazz Special Edition Istanbul as my main ride. I use that for everything. Um, and then on the left, I either have... Uh, crashes, so I use these traditional or the alchemy, the Istanbul stuff, or I've got the 25th anniversary ride that I use 20 and a half, which is a beautiful symbol, uh, or I've got the Mel Lewis, so I've got three Mel Lewis rides at the moment, um, and I use the 20 on the left, and then I use the 19, yeah, I use the 19 with rivets that I put into it on the right as a because it's like a crash as well. Um, but I've also got uh, oh no the 18 is not a Mel Lewis it's a different it's a different brand don't know what that symbol is I bought it off Errol Roberts don't know what it is it's nice it's very loud symbols it's great for playing very gently and it's got four rivets in it two each side on the edge it's uh, 18 very very loud bell uh, no idea what it is though it's got a stamp on it but I don't know anything about it um, but it, I use it as a yeah I use it as a ride. Uh, primarily on the right uh, so if I'm doing like a jazzy gig um, where I want sort of the 21, 20 and 18 or 19 and that, that, I'll use that but I'm I'm using the Mel Lewis more now the 19 with the 20 Mel Lewis it hasn't got rivets and then the 21 is on every gig um, so I carry three cymbal stands around me all the time uh, if I'm doing like a big gig I do this occasionally do this thing uh, with an orchestra disco classical thing uh, sadly it's just had another one of its gigs cancelled for this summer um, which was expected so next gig with that <coughs> looking like it's going to be July 2021 so there you go um, but with that gig I use the Yamaha hardware again the bigger hardware and I use uh, four cymbal stands because I have an extra crash um I like to have two crashes on the right. Uh, if I had the room, I'd go for the a crash on the left as well of the of another crash. So I'd have basically have four crashes. Because for gigs like that, it's just nice to be able to kind of uh, on the on what I think of as the periphery of the instrument. So outside of your normal cymbal setup, which for most people is th it's like in front of them, isn't it? It's like. If you think about the 80s, which was kind of my time getting into drums, you know, you had a ride above five piece, two toms and a floor tom, you had a ride above that, you had to stretch a little bit to get to the ride. Then you'd have a crash on your left, you'd have a splash in the middle, <clears throat> and then you'd have a crash on the right, you know. Now, some people would do the other thing, they'd have what I like the Manu Katje sort of setup, they'd have the uh, or the or more of the rockers. They'd have the ride down on the right above the floor tom. Uh, I can't play a ride down there because I find it makes my shoulder ache a bit. 
Um, but you look at someone like Manu, he seems to, you know, he seems to play great, and he? he's pretty, pretty happening. Um, he said, understatement of the century. Um, but he seems to make that work. I can't, I can't make it work over there. It just makes my arm a bit tense. Um, but it, it does mean you know you don't have to have the ride up above thirteen or the, or the fourth or twelve, whatever tom you've the extra tom you've got on the five piece. But the crash would then be above the um, the second rack tom, wouldn't it? So you've got that, and then a lot of people have a crash on the outside, or you you have a, a setup like Vinny Colliuta where he has the ride above the rack tom, which is what I would do. He's got splashes. Sp sort of spattered around above the um, above the rack toms either side I think of the symbols and then he's got his crash as well and then he's got a china up on the left which is my favourite place for china where Vinny has it very very easy to navigate and play on a china up there especially if you play traditional grip uh, I used to have a china up there I've got a beautiful 16 inch swish alchemy swish that with rivets in it it's absolutely gorgeous symbol I never play it it's sat in a case because I don't use that setup anymore you know um, well, that's my favourite place for China, uh, or or a swish, if you want to call it a swish. But this is this is like or a pang actually, the, the old sort of pang symbols. Pangs tended to not have rivets, didn't they? Um, but yeah, that would be <coughs> my preferred kind of setup. Uh, but I but yeah, I like it when when you've got this kind of standard setup where you've got the ride and two crashings. I like to have two outer crashes if I'm doing a big gig like that. And you're playing on quite a big kit. So generally, when I used to play that, I used to use the 24 bass drum and 13 and 16 tom. I used the Black Beauty snare, big snare, um, 14 by 6.5. Um, it's not a huge snare, but it's. I, I normally play Craviotto, which is a 5.5. It's my standard. I always play 5.5 snares. All my other snares are that size. Um, but yeah, it's quite nice to have um, have those crashes on the outside. And it's just that thing of wherever you end up, there's a crash available to you, you know, um, because you just want to. There's those sort of gigs. It's it's a bit. They're a bit bigger. It's a bit more of a show, and um, you don't want too many things in front of you. You you know you need because like that gig, I have to read and follow a conductor, you know. So you need to be able to have the music stand in a good place. And then be able to see the conductor, you know, and have that kind of that contact with the front of the stage because there's a lot going on, and a lot of it's directed at the drums. Um, it's a kind of interesting kind of gig for me because it's quite challenging. There's a lot of tempos and different tempos and stuff, and you've got to get the right tempos for those tunes, you know. It's it's a real challenge. So it's, you really got to know that music. So the setup's really important. So I take all the Yamaha stuff out, and I've got. As well as these lightweight Yamaha stands, I've also got the next level up Yamaha single brace stuff. I've got one behind me here, actually. Not that you can see it, but um, which has got this slightly chunkier legs and, and quite a bit heavier. And then I've also got all the double brace stuff, which I basically use for that gig or when I'm touring with somebody like Tom or somebody McRae. You know, I'll use the bigger stuff because it'll go in my big hard case with wheels, you know, and. Um, I like you just went I just find when you're touring with big gigs like that and your you you know your gears potentially getting set up by not by you by other people that you don't maybe know um if you don't tend to have techs um you know dedicated drum techs on those sort of gigs but you do depending on the tour manager sometimes you'll you'll definitely uh, they'll have an arrangement with the um 
with the venue and then you'll get to the venue and certain venues you know people will just take your gear out of the cases and will sort of set it up in a semi kind of haphazard way and you end up walking onto the stage and all your stands are up and everything and i've got a real really specific way i set everything up so it's a bit of a nightmare i'd rather just do it myself or have a tech who does it who knows exactly how i want it set up you know so um but yeah but i but you want you just want big chunky hardware that's going to basically stand up to any kind of abuse, you know, um, especially if something chucked around a bit in the, in the hard case, you know, but, um, but I, yeah, I'll use, I use that stuff for those kind of gigs, but for the sort of smaller gigs that I more regularly do, I made this investment after I bought a couple of these Gibraltar stands. I made, well, I saw online, um, actually there's, there's one step, further back than that actually in this story um not it's a very interesting story but a few years ago um the amazing clarence penn came to college to, uh, he was playing on a workshop super nice guy um extremely um, energetic human being um super positive human being uh, great so i would love to sort of guy you'd like to just be around all the time extremely um just switched on intelligent uh very nice very funny ridiculous player just like amazing player got an amazing sound 18 inch hi-hats you know um is his vibe he plays 18s um and he had with him and he was really enthused to show me this he had one of these dw light super lightweight stands and he had it in his bag and he was like dave dave check this out he got the stand out and I was like, wow, this is so light, you know. And uh, so DW, as you probably know, or, or people that don't, but the people that do know, they do. I think they've got two of these ranges, haven't they, of lightweights. There's the lightweight and there's the super lightweights. And this was on the super lightweights. And they're quite expensive, but they are exactly what they say on the tin. And they're very well made, you know. Uh, and they also, they've got a little bit more flexibility in the base than, the, than the, some of the other brands that you can buy. Um, I think Canopus make them now, but the one I bought that I saw on Amazon, this was after seeing Clarence, and, and I was like, these are mega, and they, they stand up so well, you know, they don't have, there's not an inkling of them falling over or anything, you know. Um, I went on Amazon, because I was, I was like, I'm going to get into these, this is mega, you know. Uh, it was around the same time as I was upgrading, looking to upgrade my hardware to get lighter stuff with the operation and all that kind of whatever. And, uh, I noticed that Tama were making super lightweight stands. Now, Tama is not a drum company I've had much to do with drum-wise. I don't know why. Um, it's the same with Ludwig. It's the same with Slingerland. Um, I mean, I've had Ludwig Black Beauty for for 10 years but and, and played others, but the drums themselves... I don't have, I've never had a never had a Slingland or a you know, Ludwig kit or a Tama kit. Um, had Pearls, had Premiers, had DWs, had Sonors, you know, all these different kind of kits. Had, uh, Gary Noonan and uh, Carlton drums. I owned two sets of Carlton. One of the first kits I owned, Heyman drums as well. But one of the first kits I owned was a Carlton. And these Toms I just sold recently were Carlton's. But... Uh, yeah, never had, um, never had Ludwig's, Slingerlands or Tama's, and uh, 
and I, I, I really like tarma drums when I hear them. When people play them, I just, I don't know, it's something about the sound of them. I like the die-cast hoops and things that they have on, on quite a lot of the ranges, and it's just something about the sound of them, and I like the classic sizes, and like Elvin played tarma, didn't he, and blah, blah, blah. But one thing I've had a lot of is like little bits of tarma hardware, like particularly clamps and tom holders, and, and I think that they are the best especially the clamps. The clamp designs are amazing. I've got, I used to use them all the time because I had this kit with the Pearl Masters Custom, which had um, this Tom arm, and I used to use clamps all the time. And I used to use clamps for a couple of other things, um, auxiliary things. And yeah, it's like, I just think that there's something about the way in which um, the Tama hardware is made, you know, and especially the clamps, and, and then Tom holders and stuff. Um, so I've got a lot of time for Tama. So, so anyway, I saw these lightweight Tama stands, super lightweight. Um, and they were, I had them on like a bit of a watch on Amazon. And so they'd come up and then, and then the ones at the right price, I'd just buy them, you know, um, because the plot, the price would fluctuate quite a lot. And, uh, so I bought a couple of these stands over, over about six months. The price was going up and coming down and, uh, and they were amazing stands. They're so light, and they do not budge an inch. Um, you know, I, I had them at first. I wasn't using it for my main ride. I was taking the Gibraltars out, and I was I was using these for the uh, for the right hand symbol for the for the smaller crash or the smaller ride, and just thinking, oh, I'll get away with it. I'll, you know, don't hit them too hard. And and as time went on, I realised that these things are really really solid. But anyway, the thing that prompted this kind of this rambling on about hardware um, was a few weeks ago. I was on Amazon um, looking at some other stuff, and one of these DW super lightweight stands came up, and the price was like, all oh, right, okay, a good forty quid under where they normally would be, you know. And it was brand new stand, and it was just, and I just bought it because it was like, well. They're never at that price. And I remember Clarence showing me his. It was really, really nice, really well made. And the base is a slightly, you can do a little bit more adjustment with the base. You can rise the symbol up a bit higher and have the base, the, the feet, they can kind of go closer together. Whereas the, the only thing with the Tamas is they, they go down to one position and that's it. They're locked in that position, which is fine, actually. But um, it was just, I like that little bit of flexibility. The Gibraltars, you have that flexibility. The Gibraltars will go dead flat, but they'll also, you can carry on beyond 90 degrees and you can go basically all the way up to sort of, like I'm about 160 degrees, I think. You know, you, you can get basically almost to 180 degree flat line, you know. So, um, and that makes them very flexible. If you've got mic stands and stuff around you, like I'm using the mirror at home, I've got a lot of mic stands around the kit now because I've extended kind of got mics on everything now so i've had to sort of think about i've got very limited room so like the 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 problem with mic stands is they're mainly flat bottom aren't they like the cymbal stands you end up with all these flat bottom stands all over the floor and then you, you know and that's real pain in the backside whereas normal cymbal stands just go around them so the thing that works really well with these gibraltars is that is you can have them uh, essentially like a normal cymbal stand really and they're dead sturdy they don't budge at all 
they've got really great centers of gravity these stands the, the, the you know the engineering behind it from the 60s there must have been real thought had gone into this thing about where the center of gravity is and how these things stay uh, stay upright but um the, yeah so i bought this dw stand and got it and it's and it really is very very good quality and uh, so that's now gone into the the gigging the gigging bag um i just need a gig now that's the next thing um but i'm sure that'll happen soon but i've just basically uh moved every, moved everything from having quite heavy hardware well the yamaha stuff was never heavy but there's i mean there's a there's actually uh a story pre to that so when i owned i had a dw drum kit a uh, really nice kit that i owned for a long time um i bought it in 1991 and it was a keller shell um and it was piano grand piano black it was called and it was a fusion sizes 10 12 14 hanging 14 14 by 12 um and a 20 by 16 bass drum and when i bought that kit i bought it off a guy who uh, was the distributor for he was a distributor for D-Drum. He was a distributor for DW. And he was a distributor for Collar Lock Rack Systems. So when I bought this kit, he sold it me on. A, it was a really good deal. Uh, I got it trade, sort of basically a trade price through a drummer that I knew called Mark Fletcher who introduced me. Um, and the hardware, DW hardware, is brilliant, really expensive. But the um, this kit had been used as a clinic kit. Uh, so it was it was basically what you'd call um, it's, what, it's not second hand, but it's like um, like X display. That's the um, that's the terminology I need to use. And it had been like a demo kit on on for clinics. And uh, so when I bought it, it was all still boxed up, and it had brand new heads and everything. It, I think it had just been played, but the the rack system had definitely been used. Um, you know, I think it may have been used on different drums, but the the collar lock rack system uh, had specific tom mounts and things, and and the DWs were on the rim system, so they were you, know, you can change over on the rim system. You can put all sorts of different um, connectors on there to for, for doing you you know for wherever you're mounting your toms to whatever hardware. Um, and so for a number of years, I had this collar lock rack system, which I think I've talked about before, was horrendously heavy. But I sort of adapted it into a much smaller little system and ended up with quite a light. Um, it wasn't ever light, actually. It was still really, really heavy. It needed a very specific drum key as well. It needed a drum key. You could actually get a lot of torque behind it to tighten it up because it all slipped, you know, because the drums are quite heavy and they're all in these, like these, uh, these poles between these posts and they're all tightened up. On like drum key stuff and it, and it was a bit of a nightmare but it was fine um, but eventually I replaced uh, all of the collar lock stuff with Yamaha hardware so I swapped all of the on the rim system I swapped all the tom holders to Yamaha tom holders and it worked great so when I used that kit for the last few years of owning it, um, it was basically the DW kit was all on Yamaha hardware. It had all Yamaha mounts, 
and it had um, and, I, and going on to Yamaha stands, you know, because the bass drum again was undrilled, so the toms were always going on to stands, which is again why I use the double brace stuff because you, you just got you know got cymbals and toms and nothing's going to move. Um, and yeah, when I sold that kit, I sold it um, with the uh, with the Yamaha stuff, which is I wish I sort of regret a little bit really. Um, well, one thing I regret selling the kit. I did try and buy it back recently, but the person I sold it to had sold had part exed it for a uh, for a kit, and um, it was a shame because I had asked him if he was ever going to sell it to let me know. But he'd he'd obviously come to some deal with the shop, and um, yeah, he wasn't. I've been trying to find it, but it seems to have gone anyway. That kit, somebody owns that kit now, which is fine. Um, and I've ended up, I did at the time, I remember discussing this in a previous podcast, I did want to buy Sonors at the time anyway. I wanted highlights or lights. Uh, and I've ended up with Phonics, and these Phonics are amazing. And the 18 bass drum particularly to play is just a joy, you know. My favourite of the three is the 20, the sound of it. I was recording quite recently with that 20. It sounds mega. It's really, really good bass drum. So um, really, really nice to play as well. But the 18 is a, is a real joy to play. And sounds great as well. Sounds like that Dijonet thing, that sort of eighties Jack Dijonet sort of sound. Um, and a little bit sort of Tony, a little bit sixties as well. It's just it just makes a tone, you know. It's one of those bass drums. It's got a sound about it, which was a bit like the the Chicago Star kit. It would, but that just sounded more like an old fashioned bass drum and no kind of um, no lineage in the sound. Just a bass drum which is really really great but um well yeah so that's the thing you know the thing with gear <clears throat> is that you, you know you inevitably go through these cycles with trends you know and i always sort of feel like i'm not really ever in any trend at all but i kind of jumped a bit on this trend of this lightweight hardware stuff and uh, i have to say if you've not done it and you are maybe don't know moving on a bit in years um which I, I wouldn't say i'm there yet but it's definitely you know you don't get any younger do you but if you're moving on a little bit in years and you've been struggling a little bit with carrying the hardware around i really would recommend doing a bit of research into all these so these dw's tama there's i think canopus gibraltar stuff's really good um i think yamaha are making it i'm not 100 sure um and don't know about any other companies not that well researched sorry but i'm sure you'll find your own information and find your own way with it but i definitely recommend it if you're looking to sort of take i mean i reckon i've got rid of i don't know 15 kilos from my hardware um which is a lot you know and i use i've got one of these ahead bags i was very lucky when i had my istanbul um deal with br with barry barry was um had got in with uh, a head who went with his new hardware uh, bag sorry a drum uh, bag making company um and they were making hardware bags as well and i had one of the first ones that they made and it was on wheels it was a bit like a sort of you know a handle but you could pull it on wheels and it wasn't very well made. It didn't last very long. I mean, I, I was still gigging quite a lot then. And it, 
I had to sort of, I had to say to him, oh, it's not really lasted this. It's not really worked out very well. You know, it seems to have fallen to pieces a little bit. And he just said to me, bring it back. I'll send it back to them because they'll want to know. And uh, and I did. And he, he did send it back to them. And I got given as a replacement the one that's in front of me now, which is awesome. Um, genuinely, it's I've had it for years. It looks a bit like a golf bag. So it's slightly triangular. Um, it's actually way too big for what I need it for. Uh, I don't really need this bag now um, because I've because the hardware has got smaller. But it was perfect before when I was using the Yamaha stuff. It's got really good wheels on it, chunky wheels, uh, and it's got a handle, uh, you know, a telescopic handle that's really well made, and uh, it's got really well, really good quality zips on it. Um, there's not been a hint yet, touch wood of it going wrong in any way, you know, um, particularly with the zips. So, um, yeah, I'd really recommend it. I have no idea what brand, uh, sorry, what, you know, serial number it is or what, you know, model number, but it's like a sort of golf bag. It's got a handle on the top and it's got a retractable handle that you can use to pull. It's got two positions for that. It does like a half and then a full uh, extension. Uh, really good chunky wheels, uh, the wheels on the last one were, were not very good either but the, the, the problem with the last one is the end as you were pulling with all the hardware on it the end just sort of broke and, and, and fell to pieces basically whereas this one not a hint of it um, and yeah and then um, symbol bags I'm going to go and get this symbol bag because this is a symbol bag I don't recommend yeah so I wanted a symbol bag that um, that has the back straps, you know, so you carry it like a rucksack. Um, and I was on eBay and I was just looking around at um, some different things and I saw this tiger, it's called. And uh, now the zips and things are pretty good. But basically, this thing's been a disaster. So my other half has already re-sewn up one of these, um, one of the back straps, basically. But it just, I don't know what the design flaw is. I don't know whether it's because the, the material isn't up to the job or the stitching's not up to the job or whatever. But basically, you know, it's like that thing of, because it's got weight inside it, and you're talking, if I'm carrying a standard set of symbols around, my ride weighs 1,900 grams, okay? My uh, Istanbul 25th anniversary weighs 1,800 grams, a very light, thin ride. And then my Hi-Hats, probably like 900, 800, 900 grams each, whatever, my 15s, they're pretty light. And then my Crashes, yeah, they're sort of whatever they are. I don't know what Crash, no, I never even think about the weight of Crashes, actually. But if I'm if I'm if I'm carrying three rides around with me, they're not heavy symbols, but they're big symbols, and they they fit in here fine. But and then the hi hats, and then it's got it's got a really nice thing at the back. It's great. It's got a place uh, for putting sticks in. So it's really convenient. But two things have gone wrong with it, and they're to do with it can't deal with the weight, and it's just points of fatigue, you know. So on the back straps, the stitching started to fail, so it started to basically rip. And then the hi-hat holder on the front, the bottom of it, 
uh, which I keep a towel in to protect, even to protect the um, the material, has gone. It's got a hole in it. And like, I've, had, I've not had this very long, you know. It's outside of its warranty because it would have been like a year, you know, on, or whatever. And it's not done a ton of gigs, you know. It's not done gigs like, in the past, this thing would have gone within... Uh, within within how um, how badly it's performed within my very very limited gigging life now, this thing would have lasted. I'd have given it two months, you know. So I actually would have probably got my money back because I would have been able to exchange it. But um, I'm afraid um, I wanted to really like this thing, and it's and it's and it's well made in some ways, and it's well thought out, but it's a nightmare. Um, so I'm sorry, I can't recommend. I can't recommend the Tiger uh, symbol bag with the back straps. If you see it on uh, eBay and you see it and you like the price, there's a reason why. And, uh, yeah, I've been asking my friend to sort me out with um, a different uh, symbol case with um, with back straps. But that was just before lockdown, so that's not going to have happened, I'm afraid. But it's something that I'm definitely looking into. Um because for years, when I had my Istanbul arrangement, I Barry gave me a couple of bags, you know. He, he gave me his kind of gifts. Um, and they were great, those bags. They're very, very light bags. They're, they're not, they don't feel like they're very well made, you know. They don't feel substantial. Um, but actually, they stood the test of time well. I use them for years, and they're great because they've got, a, again, they've got a place to put your drumsticks. They've got a stick bag built into them. And that, for me, is... A real must because I don't want to have sticks in a separate bag because I don't a lot of the gigs I do uh, these days uh, I am just taking breakables you know and a, a lot of the time I just want to take my cymbals I don't even want to take a snare drum you know and so I just want everything in the in one bag so the, the Istanbul bags are great because they've got a stick bag built into the back of them but they're not shoulder strapped they haven't got two straps. It's just a single shoulder. And they're a nightmare if you walk in. Or any bags like that if you're walking over distances. And we have a lot of students at college that get, they get bad shoulders because they're carrying these symbols across town, you know, and in a single, uh, with a single strap. All the, all the students that have the, the, the back strap, you know, like the rucksack style. They look like, you look like a tortoise, don't you? Like a turtle. Those style symbol bags, they never have any problems with their shoulders because there's like an even distribution of weight, isn't there? So I would definitely recommend that um and then what else is it to talk about with gear i don't want to talk about drums specifically but it's to sort of peripherals you know um um i don't really want to talk about sticks sticks and brushes are so personal aren't they you know there's no point in even going there um but like drum hardware and all that stuff and drum bags you know i use Pretty much all of the, the drum bags I use are pro, the pro racket. Um, I've got hard cases for touring. Not, not. I've got actually got a hard case, the brand hard case for hardware. It's a big, long, thin one which I can get all my hardware and I can get a, a peripheral drum um, box with with uh, with stu extra stuff in that I use when I tour, extra beaters and things like a stick case within it, so I can keep all my sticks out of the symbol case because I use a I use a flight case for symbols when I tour. Um 
even if I'm even if I'm not flying, I, uh, the symbols go in a hard hard case, like a proper I've got a proper flight case here, it's an aluminium flight case, uh, just to protect them. Um, very precious things. <clears throat> but I don't. If I fly, I put the sticks in there. But if I'm not flying, the sticks go in a box that goes inside the hard case, which has got all the hardware and the base drum pedal and all that stuff in it. But um, I've got yeah, I've got like these Leblon style cases as well. Um, but I for for normal gigging, just when I do my normal gigging, I use Pro Racket and a head. I've got a couple of a head case as well. I got again, I got through Barry, but the Pro Racket stuff, I've got several bass drum cases and all the different sizes for toms and stuff and I, and I just think it's just so much easier isn't it because you can put all the cases really easily inside each other and they can kind of squash into a corner or whatever the stuff goes in your car better because like hard cases are great when you've got space if you've got like you know if you're touring and you've got a, a trailer on a tour bus or you've got a splitter van you've got a you know, big long waist a long wheelbase sorry uh, van you can just put all your hardware in hard cases, sorry, your drums and your hardware in hard cases, and they can just pile up. It doesn't matter about room so much, and they're protected against all the other gear that's in their amps and heavy keyboards and shit like that. But um, but when, you, when you're when you schlepping your own gear around and putting it in your own car, um, it's like the, the amount of space that you save with um, using the soft cases is incredible, you know. It's, uh, I mean, I bought a new, well, it's, it's not a new car, but it's a new car to me. Um, just before lockdown in January, I, I, I bought my first saloon car in a long time. Um, anyone that knows me knows I'm pretty much a hatchbacker or an estate kind of person. Um, but I bought a sedan, a saloon, a boot, a car with a boot, a BMW. And uh, and it's, uh, it's a hybrid, so it's got... Um, got batteries under the boot but the boot's actually still pretty good it's not quite as big as uh, my my other half had a three series and had a slightly bigger boot because it didn't have the batteries but this is it's not that compromised but it's like amazing because i can get i can get the the hardware bag floor tom snare drum and high tom and cymbals all in the boot so the only thing, obviously, you can't fit in the boot in a saloon is a bass drum, you know. The only car I've ever owned that fitted an entire drum kit in, which was when I had my 18, my master's custom with the 18, all in soft cases. And I had this perfectly sized hardware bag. It was a pro racket hardware bag, but it was a, it was one they discontinued. It was a perfect size, this kind of rectangular size, small case. It just fitted everything in. I had a Volkswagen Jetta which is um, became the Bora to, um, to people that maybe don't know the Jetta. It was a Mark. It was like the Mark II Golf. You know, um, it was um, F registered. Yeah, so it would have been a Mark II GL, and they had an enormous boot, <clears throat> front wheel drive car. You know, so no no rear wheel drive or no four wheel drive, um, and yeah, it had an enormous boot. Um, and you could basically you could get the bass drum, the floor tom, the snare. I was playing a thirteen snare by the way, so I think that yeah, I don't think a fourteen would have gone in, but thirteen snare and the tom, and the hardware bag and the cymbals all fitted in this boot. So you could park the car up anywhere with your entire kit in it, not be on view, you know, 
which is a real blessing in some points. And the and the Beamer's quite good for that. Like the Golf I had before, um, because it's a four-wheel drive one, that you lose a load of stuff, you lose a load of boot space, basically. The hatch is nowhere near as big as it is, it is on a standard um, Golf. Uh, or if you buy that, the equivalent Skoda, uh, I'm not sure there is an equivalent, actually, in the Skoda range. But um, but if you go to the estate, if you go to a Octavia, they're absolutely massive boots. It just, I think the biggest boot in the class, I think, of any car. The front-wheel drive version, not the four-wheel drive. The front-wheel drive version, yeah. Um, because, obviously, when you get into four-wheel drive stuff you have rear differentials that eat into boot space so you have a different you know different floor pattern floor plan essentially so but yeah the uh, the golf was never was never great and then i had, I had a merc before that a hatch an a-class um a45 and it never that again has four-wheel drive had a rear differential and had a very narrow entrance but had a slightly deeper boot than the golf um but yeah, I, I did the Jetta. Nothing's ever been close to the Jetta, and the Borers that they made, the Mark Three and Mark Fours, um, or maybe they didn't make a Mark Three. I think Mark Four was they went straight to Mark Four when the Borer came out. It's the same car, but they called it Jetta in America. I think it carried on being called a Jetta, and it's now a Jetta again in Europe. Um, I'm not sure whether they make them anymore, but you know those kind of decisions about the sort of type of car and the boot is really important. So I, I so I got this car and I'd sort of measured out the boot a bit and it was like, yeah, I reckon I can get... Because um, I couldn't get the symbols in the boot in the Golf and I couldn't get the floor tom at all. So it was bass drum symbols and, and floor tom would all have to go on the back seat and then the hardware bag and the snare and the tom would just fit in the boot, you know. Whereas with the Beamer, it's like I can get the floor tom and the symbols in the boot, and it's like a big makes a big difference. So if I if I go anywhere, I need to park up and not take my gear out for a while. I can just take the bass drum out of the car, you know. Um, or if I can see the car, you can just leave the bass drum in the car. But there's, there's very little on show, you know. So it's all those kind of little things that make a big difference when it when it comes to sort of um, you know gear and how much. Um, space you really need but ideally i think i would now downgrade this hardware bag um because i mean i'm looking at it now it's in front of me i have it's got these straps that you can basically tie up really tight and i've got it on its tightest setting just to make it as small as possible and it's still bigger than it needs to be so um but the thing i love about it again it's another age thing is it's the wheels you know I always carried hardware before. You've always carried, and and now having having a hardware bag that's got wheels makes a massive difference. Really, really makes a big difference. So, so that's kind of about it, really. Um, the other thing I was going to mention this week, I know it's some uh, some of the people I've been talking to have been having similar thoughts or uh, been doing similar things, was just about self recording. Um, and I've just recently upgraded most of my gear. Um, so I've gone from uh, a four-in sound card to eight-ins. And then I've added... Uh, so I've got some okay overheads. I've got a pretty standard snare and kick situation. Audix D6 and an SM57. 
And then I decided to invest in some of the Audix Tom mics. I did. I listened to quite a lot of stuff online with headphones and through some studio monitors and also just on um, normal laptop speakers and just listened to some different Tom. I looked at the AKG stuff. I looked at... Um, there was a few different uh, things with AKGs, actually. There's quite a few different options. Uh, but I also checked out the Audix stuff and... Uh, decided for the price point for what I'm doing and for the preamp that I've got, the sound card that I've got, I've just upgraded it, but, uh, you know, I don't have a really expensive preamp. So it's like, well, you know, I don't need really expensive microphones. So I decided to go down the D, the D2 and D4 to match the D6. So I bought, I've just bought two Audix D2s for my rack toms and an Audix D4 um, I bought an 18 sound card now, and then I bought a uh, an AKG uh, 451B um, hi hat mic, and it's that's a beautiful thing. But I, I I bought that brand new. Actually, I bought the D2 and D4. I bought those two brand new, and I bought another D2 I found secondhand. Um, but the AKG was the was definitely the the one that I sat and thought about. And it was just listening to when I was recording myself and just the thing with the hi-hat not having the detail, you know. So I've got, like, these Rode NT5 overheads and they're set up in an XY kind of position above the bass drum. And you do get, you know, you get a nice uh, you get a nice sort of image and you do get hi-hats. Uh, the cymbals sound good. The ride sounds nice. Um, but... When I got this mic the other day and I set it up and started recording and set the channel up and I was listening back and just doing a bit of metering and make sure I was getting the right level in. And the thing that's great about the, the AKG, the, the, the 451, is it's this the, the B model, the new model. And this is what you learn as you research stuff. So I looked at the, the 45, the vintage one. There's the, there's the E and then there's the EB. Um, and the, uh, the new one, there was loads of things that just seemed better about it, like the way in which the um, the construction has different, um, like where where the parts of the microphone are joined together. They've got there's it's a component that's not going to rust and create basically create sort of sounds in the microphone, which apparently the older ones are susceptible to. So I was looking at loads of old, like second-hand ones, EBs and and um, and the E's, uh, the vintage ones, and um, there's some reasonably good prices. But I and and I did my research. In the end, the new one was not that much more. And the thing that's great about the new one is it's got pad, so it's got minus ten and minus twenty dB, and it's got two roll-offs, minus seventy-five hertz, uh, sorry seventy-five hertz roll-off, and a one. 20 i think i can't remember i can't see it from here but it's got two roll-offs and that's really really useful i mean the pad's really useful because the sound card i bought um i've got quite an old mac uh that i use for recording and i didn't i, I was going to invest in the new uh scarlet the generation 3 it's USB C, but i was freaking out about whether it would just stop working with this mac if uh if i upgraded the operating or it's just, something would just not work you know so I went for the Gen 2 when I found one secondhand, and uh, it was at the right price, and it's really nice. But the only problem with it, and there's only one problem, is it's only got two pads. So input one and two have got pads. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight are not on pads. Uh, 
but I'm running the Audix stuff and the SM57 through inputs five to eight off phantom power, and I'm not getting. I'm getting nice leveling at minus, you know, metering at minus eight. Really playing loud on those channels, so I've got no problem um, with the input, and it's all it's all coming in about minus sixteen, fifteen, which is what I was recommended. You know, with digital. And then channels one and two, I'm using with the, with the Rode NT5s. Uh, they need phantom power, but they've got pads on the card. So that's fine. I can run the pads on the card because the mics haven't got pads on. They're just uh, basic mics. They don't have any pads or any roll-off. This mic I'm using now, the NT2A, this Rode one, has got roll-off. Um, it's got 100. I think it's 100 hertz, I think. Let's have a look. Um, it's got different patterns and it's got uh, the light on it. Oh, it's got roll off 1480. It's got um, figure of eight, it's got cardioid, and it's got like just omni. And then it's got minus five and minus ten pads. So, I when I'm doing my podcast, I just turn the level down. I'm running on phantom, and uh, this is just on this is without a pad on it. Um, but the hi-hat mic is going in on one of the, the channels with phantom because it needs phantom but it's got the pad on the mic so it just means that yeah i can i'm getting you know i'm getting nice leveling uh on 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 that channel with the with the pad on minus 20. so yeah just learning lots of stuff so it's just if you're thinking about you know, upgrading your gear I think it's just worth thinking about those sorts of things. You know, metering is really important. I did, I had no idea really it was that important, but just that thing of being able to, you know, record digitally at a very safe level. Uh, I've just noticed a massive difference. I mean, one is that the sound card is obviously a lot better quality than the one I was using. I've gone from um, this pretty good Behringer thing, which was very cheap, to um, to this Scarlet Gen Two. 18i20 which is really nice sound card um, for the money and yeah but the new one the gen 3 has pads on all eight channels which is very very handy so you know that's definitely um, the next thing to look at but i wanted also wanted i wanted the eighth channel for um for i've got 58 sm58 as well which i use if I'm teaching or you know doing something with the with the kit when I'm talking as well and recording because the 58 is great because it's you know you could use that mic and it doesn't pick a lot of other stuff up when it's when it's in the right position. Whereas this mic that I use for recording podcasts and stuff this this used to be my overhead when I used to have the I used to have a Scarlet Focus uh, sorry a Focusrite uh, Sapphire two in card I used to use a 57 and I used to use this mic I'm using now. And in some ways, it was so much easier with less choices, you know. But the thing I'll say is if you do want to upgrade and you want to kind of get into a more sophisticated setup with your drums and get some more mics, is, is definitely do a little bit of research into how to record kind of properly. You know, just the fundamentals of making sure you understand the software properly. I really like any piece of advice I could give. That would be the one thing. Because it just makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, all, all this stuff about compressors and EQs and reverbs and all these things. And, you know, as long as you know how to use them, 
properly the rest of it is all about your ears and your preference you know how you want things to sound you know what's the music that you're creating what's that's what's the sound world that it lives in what's what you know what do you want your drums to sound like etc etc and i just think that if you know how to use your, your, the actual fundamental gear properly then you're going to be able to do that you know uh, don't make the mistake I did. I, I mean, I had Cubase for years and various different sound cards. And uh, I listen back now to some of the stuff I recorded years ago, and it's absolutely terrible, you know. And most of it's because the metering was all wrong. It's just like everything's basically clipping, you know. It's all it's all up and around zero dB, you know, which is just a nightmare. So um, yeah. Anyway, just things and stuff and stuff to stay focused on projects um during this time for us musicians where we've got um, like you know like i was saying we haven't got any gigs to play so we've got to find other things to do but i'm sure that's going to change soon uh, other parts of the world it's certainly changed i've got an ex-student who lives in um germany lives in berlin and he's been doing some gigs and stuff and playing with people he likes he's gone back to normal a little bit um and so that's great so that's kind of in, i was really encouraged to see that um and that they they're obviously germany they dealt with things a bit differently than we did and uh seem to have done better with this situation than we have um so they find themselves in that position don't they but i think you know the whole world's still on on alert for this thing because it could flare up again um so yeah but hopefully you know, there'll be some gigs to be played soon. We'll be back together again making music. Um, so that's it, really. Gear. I didn't think I was ever going to make a podcast about gear, but actually I was quite enjoyed talking about that. It was quite interesting. Um, nothing else to say, really. I was just trying to think of whether there's any other sort of cymbal stands or other stuff that I wouldn't recommend or pedals that I wouldn't recommend. Um and there isn't actually because most of the stuff that I've bought, I mean, like I had a Yamaha pedal, for instance, a while ago before these ones that I use now, and they weren't that well made, and they didn't stand up to the test of time. But the thing that I, the thing I never gave the the hardware credit to be fair to it, um, and it's the same with like I remember moaning years and years ago about hard drives failing in computers, you know, and then you read like the IBM spec sheet for a hard drive. And it would say, IBM guaranteed the operation of this hard drive for 16.7 hours per day or in any 24-hour period. And you're like thinking, why the hell does it not work 24 hours a day? And then you really think about what it's doing. Something that's, I mean, the hard drives I was talking about, the 7,200 RPM, the old hard drives, you know, the, the, the ones that were... Um, SATA 2 or whatever they were called smart that's smart and all that stuff um, these are more my days when I used to build PCs but when you know that evolution from the 5400 RPM to the 7200 RPM and I used to say why didn't they just work 24 hours a day and then you really think about what they're doing and it's like it's incredible that they work 16 whatever hours a day reliably and that IBM will guarantee that with a warranty for um, 12 months you know you think about how much work that that hard drive's doing and it's the same with drum hardware i used to i moaned about this yamaha pedal that i own because it basically where the chain connected to the underside of the foot plate it had two 
uh, like nuts, uh, bolts, whatever they were. Um, and the pedal's made out of, you know, it's not an amazing alloy, is it? None of them. They're all made out of basically uh, different grades of blended recycled metal that's definitely not steel. Um, so, you know, that's the economy of scales. That's the way things work. But um, they failed. These two, where the, where the chain was connected, it failed. The threads failed, essentially. Um, and I was really angry about this because I had not had the pedal that long. I'd had it for like three years. But I'd done probably nine, eight or 900 gigs and rehearsed and whatever with it. So when you actually think about it, that's pretty good. Uh, and so now when I put the hardware I've got now into that perspective, these that, that was one of the reasons why I bought these direct drive ones, because there's no parts like that on the direct drive pedals. They're all they're all on uh, shafts, you know. So you get you know it's a solid plate cast with a shaft to another piece of solid metal that's cast to another shaft onto another piece of solid metal. And so therefore all you've got to do is oil it take care of it and just take care of it and you you should it should last for 50 years you know and i'm it for far as i can work out at the moment if uh carry on looking after things as i am they, they will last 50 years you know could be something i'll be leaving in my will to somebody um so but so thinking back to the pedal i got annoyed with this yamaha thing that failed actually what was it probably uh, it was its build time. Sorry, its build quality and its and its life expectancy will have been a finite number of uses, you know. And it probably had exceeded that um, because I was, you know, using this pedal every day, chucking it in and out of bags and rehearsing with it and gigging with it every day and playing all sorts of different gigs, playing loud, soft, whatever. But this thing, you know, failed in the end. So these pedals they built now are, are a massive step up. And um, they weren't a lot more money, but they've, they've value for money wise, they way have exceeded, you know, their kind of, um, you know, what 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 one would have expected out of them, you know. So um, yeah, I mean, I remember years ago I uh, I lodged in a house with somebody, um, and I was between um, places to live, shall we say. And uh, the chap I was renting the room off, um, very bright guy, who was into drums and stuff a bit, and uh, was an engineer, and uh, and he bought one of these trick pedals from America. He he bought it. It was you know it was like it was very expensive at the time, three over three hundred pounds, and. Uh, and he bought it partly because, well, he was he, he bought a kit off me and he and he played drums a bit and stuff as well, you know. And but he also bought it because he was an engineer and he was intrigued at how well this thing was made because it basically boasted it was kind of aircraft grade um, quality, you know, parts, etc. And uh, he was an aeronautical engineer, so he was really interested uh, to see whether this pedal was any good. And it was amazing. I mean, he lent it to me once, and I gave it him back because I didn't want to get into it because I'd have had to have bought one, you know. And then I'd have then been like worrying about using it and taking it out on gigs because it was expensive. But it was, but it was amazing. It was one of those, one of those things where they'd thought about 
all the eventualities of what you need adjusting you know you want to play like you want to play the pedal very gently but get lots of power so the so the cam follows itself a certain way where you play the pedal quite gently but you get like a whack against the head they had that nailed they had the opposite where you could put loads of input in and you get a lot less power for the input they had um Every single conceivable different height and position, with no fouling on any parts of the uh, of the construction, the mechanisms. You know, the the springs were amazing. Like the 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 spring on the you know, normal bass pedal, you, you you pull a spring, don't you? You pull against, and it, the spring then contracts and pulls the pedal back. These were compression springs, so the spring was infinitely adjustable. It felt like inside, like you could go on and on and on forever, adjusting, getting having it tighter or looser or whatever. But it basically worked on a compression. So as you push the pedal down, it it, it uh, this is the way I understand it. Anyway, it compressed the spring. It didn't pull the spring. It's a very different feeling, you know, that thing of pushing against something that then pushes you back as opposed to pulling against something that pulls you back. You know what I mean? Interesting. It felt amazing. Uh, and the foot pedal and the construction, everything was brilliant. I didn't like the beta. I think those beaters are pretentious. I've seen them on quite a few. The Axis pedals, a guy I teach at college, has a really nice one of those pedals. They're great pedals. I really recommend them. They come up quite cheap sometimes as well if you keep your eyes open. He got one for steel. But I don't like the beaters. I just think the beaters are pretentious. I just think that they're not—they're not a bass drum beater. They're—they're like—they are too engineering-y, you know. Um, give me a wooden beater or, or a, you know, a nice bomber like a Vater bomber or something, or a cork beater any day of the week, you know, or just a regular normal beater. But these weird, highly constructed kind of super thin with these pieces of felt on them it's not a bass drum beater it's just it doesn't feel right to me anyway that's just my personal opinion but but the pedals that that's really where you know you want the engineering to go but yeah the axis pedals are really good but it was very they're kind of built on a sort of similar pla uh, similar idea i think but just not quite as high quality you know because um, every single part of this pedal was so well made so if you ever see them um, they're really good. They they make these really nice snare drum catches, don't they? Done it and trick and these different people. Um, really posh, um, really posh hardware. It's really nice stuff. It's like buying high end, you know, buying a, a high end car like an S class, and it's got knurled, you know, um, like indicator stalks or something. I don't know, you know, but it's the same kind of things. Uh, really really tactile nice things to use on my craviotto the 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 catch is like that you know it's it's beautiful fine thread so that it's it, it tightens so subtly and it's got beautiful throw you know the way the throw and it's got like little um tiny little dimples drilled into it so you when you adjust the tightness it, it clicks into these little holes but it's like, and each little hole is like two or three mil apart. But the the, the thread is so fine that it's such a small amount of tension change. But they've really got it kind of nailed, you know, because uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't want to have you wouldn't want to not have the dimple the holes with this. It's like a little half a ball bearing that goes into it, because you basically never get slip. Then you see, you know, that the, it never undoes. 
because it's it's always locking into one of these little dimples, you know. I mean, this, uh, this, this, I think it's like a quarter of a ball bearing, actually, or whatever. But I don't know if it's done it or trick, but it's one of those companies. It's really, really well made, you know. And it's just stuff like that on those kind of drums that you forget about why they're so good, you know. Apart from the fact that the, the drum is a beautiful, beautiful drum, the construction of the shell and everything. But it's just like the hardware that's attached to it is is just top-notch as well, you know. Um, it's one of the bones of contentions with the Black Beauties, isn't it? Now, I've got my Black Beauty here, and the catches are awful. They're a nightmare to get on and off with, you know, silently. Um, like, I use mine for certain gigs and recording, and you really have to be very careful putting the snares on and off, because, you know, whereas with the with the crab, with this, you, you know, you just never hear it. It's just so smooth and so ergonomic, you know. And the DW one I had was the same, and, the, and I've got a Tama catch on a, on a Sonar snare here that's the same. They're just very, very well made, and they're super silent when you put them on, you know. So um, anyway, that's kind of it, really. Um, I hope you have a good week. Thanks for listening, and um, maybe next week it might be this interview or this kind of drum summit get together interview with Elliot Henshaw. Let's see if we can get it together. Um, I've got a couple of other people I'm trying to also interview. Um, just, yeah, still trying to get that together as well. So lots of different things coming up over the next few weeks, I hope. And um, so if you have been, thank you for listening and bye for now. <laughs>